Our town was founded in 1653, over 120 years before our country was even founded. Since then, its citizens have played a role in the fight against the British during the American Revolution, the defense against slavery during the Civil War, and has endured hundreds of years of change and conflict. In this episode, we revisit the infamous and brutal murder of Charles G. Kelsey, known as Kelsey's Outrage, which took place one fall night close to Hexha Park in Huntington, New York on November 4, 1872. This horrendous act had all the ingredients of a good murder mystery, including forbidden romance and revenge, resulting in allegations of murder against one of Huntington's leading citizens, a murder which remains unsolved to this day. My name is Mark Neely. I'm the president of State Restaurant Consulting Company. Prior to that, I was a New York City health inspector. My restaurant goes through a cycle inspection at least once a year. On the reinspection, depending on how the restaurant performs, they're issued a grade, A, B, or C. You can get a B grade very easily by a couple of cracked floor tiles, maybe a dusty ventilation hood, a fruit fly that was found at the bar, and a thermometer maybe that wasn't working properly. And, and there's your B grade. For an A grade restaurant, could have, like I said, a couple of weeks ago, been closed down. The inspector can find a live rat in the kitchen and still issue an A grade. That's the 10-point violation, and it takes 13 or more points to, to lose your age. It's really just a snapshot in time. If you get inspected as a restaurant owner on a Friday night, let's say when you're packed, uh, your chances of more violations are, are there, as opposed to, let's say, a restaurant across the street that gets inspected on a Tuesday afternoon when the restaurant is actually closed and, and cleaning up between lunch and dinner service. Yes, I would certainly eat at a restaurant that did not have an A in the Neoliberalism is a way of defining human beings by the market. And while it began as a sincere philosophy, it very quickly became a self-serving racket, uh, which effectively exempted billionaires and large corporations from the constraints of democracy, from paying their taxes, from not polluting, from having to pay fair wages, uh, from not exploiting their workers. One of the things that neoliberalism wants to get out of the way is democracy. In some respects, it's been absolutely overt about that. Because my happy Episode of the Humor and the Abject Podcast, you steely Dan listening, printing out a PDF and reading it in the bathtub, insisting that Ridgewood is fake queens, screedlers. This is Staff Only the Podcast Studio Manager. Are you listening to this background track right now? It is probably one of the worst things that I have ever heard in my life. And, yet, it is giving me life. 
It kind of sounds like if extreme animals didn't understand irony. Okay, actually, on second thought, I fucking love this track. Yep. Listening a little more closely now. I do love it. Anyways, on this week's episode, we've got New York-based writer Mike Peppy. Let's turn it over to your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. I'm Ira Glass. Welcome to Jackass. It's episode 103 of the Humor in the Abject podcast. I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. If you didn't see it yet and you like to read art criticism for some fucking reason, Art in America published my review of Paper Dance, Janine Antoni with Anna Helprin at the Contemporary Austin's Jones Center last week. Give it a read if you like. It was a pretty cool retrospective, and I've been trying all week since to make a meme out of Janine Antoni and Antony from Queer Eye, but um, I'm kind of hitting a wall. Anyways, this week we've got New York writer Mike Pepe on the pod. Can you believe it took this long to get him? I've asked him every single week since I've started Humor in the Abject, and every time he's written me back and said, let's give you a little more time to find your voice. Um, That happened, I don't know, 101 times uh, until last week's 102nd episode with Bridget Mosier. At which point he wrote to me and declared that the podcast had reached perfection, which is incredible. Um, you know Pepe from Twitter, and from that time he tried to change the lighting at the Dallas Barbecue in Chelsea after Brad Trammell's opening. I was there, and it feels uh, very special to be a part of art history. Here's my conversation with Mike Pepe. I've got my seltzer and my coffee. Mike Pepe, welcome to Humor and the Abject. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Sean. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on Red Scare. Oh my uh, god! Okay, we'll, there it is. <laughs> can I, I just we'll say? Can, later, I, but... can I just say right off the top, Happy Mueller Report weekend, Mike? I know this is a big deal for you. <laughs> yeah, um, it's funny. <laughs> thank, thank you. Happy Mueller Report weekend to you too. Uh, I hope you read it soon. Thank but, you. Um, I was actually watching college basketball in a sports bar when it dropped, and my friend was like, "This is our, this is our moment. Like, we're all gonna remember where we were when the Mueller report dropped." And I was eating onion rings and drinking Narragansett. So. What what game were you watching? Uh, I forget exactly which one it was, but it was. Uh, God, we were in this like ridiculous like Williamsburg bar, which every time I go back there, it's like kind of like triggering. But. Um, I think it was like Oregon versus Wisconsin or something. I'm not really sure. But um, but by the way, just so okay. you know, I did uh, when filling out my bracket this year, I made a Sean Carney bracket, which basically what has me. <laughs> it basically has it basically has ASU, VCU, Michigan oh, State, hell yeah. and Oregon in the final four. It's all the schools that you've That's amazing. attended or Oh my I don't know. God. Well, I didn't go. To, I've lived in I've lived in Oregon, but I didn't go to school at U of O or work there. But I did all those other ones. Yes, which is that's that's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> There's like my sister had my sister had my family fill one out too. So this is my first year doing a thing, and I 
kind of went through. I don't know anything about college basketball, but I Venmoed my sister five bucks to put into the pot, and then I just made a guess based on the thing on like CBS's bracket yeah, or something. Yeah. And I mostly I picked schools that I thought nice people would go to. Yeah, so that's good. I I understand that that might not. Uh, result in me doing very well in the bracket, but I tried to choose the colleges that I, I would want to hang out with people who went there. I thought that was a, a nice way to approach it. I'm probably going to get obliterated <laughs> because that almost means definitely their basketball teams are bad. Yeah, well, anyway, back to the Mueller report dropping. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it was kind of funny because it was a little bit like the the OJ trial when when uh, or not the OJ trial, but the OJ chase like interrupted like a lot of really important sports yeah. games, and there's like an ESPN thirty for thirty <laughs> about it, and like Bob Costas like had to cut into like a, I think it was like a Knicks game or something. Anyway, a, a very similar thing happened this weekend because mm-hmm. uh, basically, you know, a good amount of the nation was like transfixed watching this like insane basketball tournament, and all of a sudden, all the TVs just like flashed. Like you know, MSN or whatever, and just like uh-huh, the headline to let everybody know that surreal. something was happening, but nothing was going to happen as a result. That's yeah. an exciting news break. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely kind of like a little bit of a non-story. It's like someone sent an email internally at the FBI, basically, because we're not going to be able to read it for a while, right? Like <laughs> ev- everyone was like scrambling to Google. They were like, "Wait, does this mean that? Does this mean that we're gonna? You know, it's it's released, or does this just mean like what is what's going on here?" And it turns out. I think I have this right, but it turns out that like it may never actually be unsealed, so we we may never read this thing. But uh, right, yep, it's it's a big weekend for for some people. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like when Dumbledore released his tax returns, which is uh, huge in the in the resist community. Which I <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask how the how is the lighting where you are right now? <laughs> well. Um, it's not so much the lighting, lighting enthusiast. It's not so much the lighting as you, as you know. I've been meticulously retrofitting my room into a, a, a an Earthsats um, sound studio. So I've I've basically taped all uh-huh. of my towels to the walls to create that like sort of like buffer. <laughs> so I'm just basically in a dark room with my towels taped to any open wall space I have. Um, and as a result, I've had to drop my <laughs> blinds because I felt that that would also act as sort of like a sound buffer. So it's very dimly lit. Yeah. I'm also worried about uh, this lamp. Uh, this lamp may actually have a little bit of like a hum to it. So I've turned the lamp off as well. So I'm, I'm in a very suboptimal lighting situation. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, anyone who uh, has followed me on Twitter knows that I've long reported on your interest in interior lighting, um, specifically dating back to... This is going to be almost five years ago now at this point, but the infamous Dallas barbecue uh, post Brad Trammell opening, at which point you had disappeared from the table at some point in the evening. And I, I looked over and you were walking around trying to find the light switches to change the ambiance of Dallas barbecue, uh, insisting to the manager that the lighting was wrong. Yeah, two, two really upsetting things happened that night. One was... Uh, one was uh, one was that apparently Dallas Barbecue does not have their lighting on dimmers, which is you know the first mistake. Um, but but yeah, it's like there's no natural light because oh, it's all or nothing. Because we were yeah. we were in the basement, right? Uh, we were in the basement. We were in the lower it's level. All yeah. overhead lighting. Um, you know, no 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 sort of uh, thought was put into where the hi hats were, where the tables would be situated in relation to that. So it was just kind of a mess. Um, but I think it's important, though. I think, like, lighting is a, is a really important part of the dining experience. I mean, it really kind of, like, sets the mood, and a lot of places don't really get it right, but it's okay. What do you think about that part where you're at a bar, and 
it's like sort of towards the end of happy hour and they um you know the bartender usually they they dim the lights and then everybody kind of like looks at each other and makes a joke about like hey did it just get sexier in here you know how that happens all the time what do you think it's about so that? funny you mentioned that because that that happened yeah to me yesterday <laughs> Um, I don't know. It's, it's always kind of weird. Uh, can we can we like walk through the logic there? Like, why would they dim the lights when it gets darker out? I thought it would be the opposite. I don't know. I think it's like a it's a transition to eve. It's to say, I mean, the happy hour crowd. I feel like is kind of like it's post work. People are there to you know tie one on for a little bit, but typically, I feel like those people are going to transition home. Yeah, and probably eat some dinner. Um, probably relax or something like that. They're trying to catch a buzz and be in bed by 10. Um, so I think it's a sort of like, it's notifying people that, you know, the shift has changed. Like you happy hour people need to leave because there's going to be some, a different type of thirst is about to enter the bar <laughs> and that's going to be going late until the evening. Um, yeah, I mean, I normally, I normally like it, uh, but again, this is just more proof to my theory that that just totally changes the complexion of a room. So it does. Uh, it's always kind of shocking to everyone. What's more shocking is it like four fifteen in the morning when they turn the lights on. That's a really gross <laughs> scene. Yeah, have you been there when that happens? Uh, not in a while. I haven't been clubbing since four a.m. in quite some time. Um, but what do you think of that? Uh, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a funny, like, kind of like gallery corollary to this is when they flash the lights when they want everyone to leave at like eight o'clock when they're, oh yeah, like it's a kindergarten yeah, it's like class like, assistant to go over and do it. And, like, and, and honestly, like the first four times it happens, everyone ignores it. You know, it's just like, everyone's like too cool to, to like be the one yeah. to leave or like, you know, they're just sit, still sitting there like swilling their tecate mm-hmm. or something. Or what's that other one that everybody, that they always give out, um, Yingling. Uh, so earlier this week, as we were scheduling this, I asked you what I should do to learn a little bit more about your favorite band, uh, jazz rock superstar Steely Dan. Uh, and you told me to watch this documentary that was on YouTube about their 1977 album Asia, spelled A-J-A. Uh, I watched it, and I'm excited to talk to you about this because I didn't, I'm going to admit, I didn't know much about Steely Dan before. I couldn't have told you a song, but it turns out they sing like half the songs I know. <laughs> How did you get into the Dan, Mike? Oh, man. So I guess, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's like probably my dad. Okay, so my dad used to have this like beat up white Volvo and he was just like such a typical boomer. Uh, and he was a jazz guitarist, I think, at some point in his life. Uh, and he would just drive. Really? He would just drive me around and we would listen to um, these like smooth jazz stations and they were just so terrible. Mm-hmm. And it was just so it was basically like elevator mm-hmm. music. And then one day we started talking about like how this is produced and everything. And, um, you know, the sound quality is always very high there. Um, and then every once in a while, these like smooth jazz stations would play a Steely Dan song and it would like be clearly kind of like outside of the genre a little bit because it was like a song yeah. that people actually knew and it was kind of popular. Um, and I, so I, I kind of remember being like, oh wait, who's this? Who's this? This is a good song. Finally, after listening <laughs> to this insufferable elevator music. Um, and my dad's like, that's Steely Dan. Uh, and so, uh, uh, that's kind of how I got into Steely Dan. I, I, I kind of had a break from Steely Dan for probably throughout college. I wasn't really into them. Um, and then I guess I had, uh, what you'd call a Danissance, uh, <laughs> two summers ago where right. I was, I was in, I was in Oregon. <clears throat> um, we were, we, we were overlooking Mount Hood, Yeah, but I forget, 
I forgot exactly where we were. Okay, but you were in you were there for like a bachelor I was, party. Yeah, right? I was there because for I was a bachelor in Oregon party. at the same time, but our paths did not cross. I so, remember. So this. I was there for a bachelor party, and like there were a bunch of people who were like roughly my age, and then there's always like that one older dad guy in the bachelor party, and he basically starts playing Steely Dan, and 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 as he starts to play it, he's like. Hey, is anyone okay if I play some Steely Dan? I was like, yeah, sure, go ahead. I haven't heard them since college. <laughs> and so he starts playing it. And as 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 the songs are playing, he is live doing like the genius annotations of the lyrics. And it was just the most beautiful thing ever. And he just brought the songs to life so mm. much more. Um, and it was just something combined with, you know, the beautiful vistas of, of Mount Hood and just this sort of like lush Oregon wilderness and these amazingly cryptic mm-hmm. boomer light jazz rock songs. It just triggered me back into like a really deep steely Dan hole. Um, but it's also kind of like, yeah, mm-hmm. so that's how I got into them. But I mean, the Danisons is a whole nother podcast. I think that's, you know, that's, uh, that's also kind of a beautiful well, I thing. was, I mean, I was, I didn't know that steely Dan was just like two guys. <laughs> Like, and then they had, or that, or at the point that they recorded Asia, that it was basically just two guys with guns for hire yeah. and they're bringing in, they're bringing in seven dudes to play one solo and scrapping six of the takes and just like, we got to get this guy. And you know who they, you know, who that reminds me of Mike, you know, what other band has primarily just two dudes who kind of run the show? Who? The Mars Volta. <laughs> All I could think about the entire time that I was watching this documentary was I was like, this is Omar A. Rodriguez Lopez and Cedric Bixler Zavala. Like, 100%. They're just, they're the visionaries behind it. They've got all these different people kind of fulfilling their vision. You know, there are Mars Volta records where Omar sat John Frusciante down and just told him what to play, and Omar didn't even play guitar on the record. It's entirely John Frusciante. I mean, this is the parallels that I was drawing were, oh, I was losing my mind, buddy. You're gonna you're gonna kill me, Sean. But I've never listened to it's the Mars Volta. Fine. I don't even know what they are. Maybe it's gonna maybe it's gonna be like maybe it'll be like when you hear them. It'll be like when I heard Steely Dan and I was like, oh, I know this song. <laughs> Except it won't at all. But you could. I made you know Keith Verity. Yeah. Verati. I don't. Nobody knows how to say Keith's last name. <laughs> I, he's t- pronounced it different ways to me. Um, Keith had a show in Hudson uh, at like Retrospective or something one time. And he asked people to make him mixes for it that could play during gallery hours. And I made him like a four and a half or five hour, uh, two decades spanning mix of collaborations between the two guys from Mars Volta. And so, I mean, just the, the, the friendship between Donald and what's the other guy's name? There's Donald Fagan and the uh, Walter. (laughs) Well, and who is passed, by the way. I'm sorry for your loss. I learned that afterwards. But the really, yes. Yep. Uh, of the friendship between them and their kind of collaboration, it really kind of spoke to me on a lot of levels. I, I was feeling very emotional while I was watching this thing. <laughs> it's yeah. really cool. No, it's, uh, I mean, I'm glad, I'm glad you uh, appreciate it, Sean. I mean, as a multi-talented person in general, but also a talented musician and sound engineer, I knew you'd uh, appreciate it. But also just, I think it's inspiring for anyone to just... <laughs> understand the 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 level of care that they put into their craft and and you know the the point you're making about it's only two people it's like 
they did that purposely because they knew that they couldn't do everything. Yeah. They wanted over 40 musicians contributed to Asia uh, over a year of recording. And, you know, the, the thought was very simple. Like, we're going to get the best possible person to do each part and it's going to be exactly what they do the best and we're just going to bring it all together it was actually pretty fun and to your point earlier about kind of listening to these muzak stations or smooth jazz and then hearing steely dan as this kind of diamond in the rough there was a very funny moment in the documentary where donald fagan i think is talking about growing up and being really as the first like tv generation and being very interested in this like fake jazz like jazz that was produced for to be yeah. to accompany visual media. Yeah. And so it was this fake kind of jazz. And he described it as very funny. Yeah. And I really liked that. Yeah. That did speak to I, me. I also think that this comes out in the documentary a little bit, but I mean, Donald and Walter are just kind of like goofy dudes, right? You know, they're just like, yeah. they're like anti rock stars, right? They just, they, mm-hmm. they almost, they never tour. Uh, they just want to let the music speak for itself. Um, but yeah, that was also interesting. I think, I think they're, Look, there's one thing to know about Steely Dan is they are like the the the, the personification of boomerism, like writ large. Like they are just the most <laughs> boomer thing I can imagine on so many different levels. Uh, and one of those is sort of like being part of this, like growing up in this like 50s generation and just like having that stuff so seeped into their craft and what they do. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because back then, like they, people couldn't really choose what culture to participate in. There weren't like subcultures, right? Like there's kind of like one big mono channel culture. Like everyone loved the Beatles. Everyone watched like the one show that was on. Everyone had to do like the duck and cover, you know, nuclear fire drills or whatever they're called. Like it was, and and then, and then from there it just Mm -hmm. like blew out to this insane thing. But, but yeah, make no mistake. uh, The the, the boomer menace starts and ends with Steely Dan. Oh yeah. I mean, there was a couple points where they were talking where I was just like, I was imagining like one of, one of my friends of our generation saying this over there, just like, I just, um, I was only attracted to black music. And I was like, you can't say that. Like, and, then, and they're like, so I just, uh, I, I heard this black music and I thought, well, this is it. And I took it. And then we made something new with it. And I was just like, ah! but yeah, very good kind of boomer smooth brain mindset. How many times have you donated to Bernie's campaign for 2020? That, that would be every single time he sends me an email. How many times is that? Uh, I think he sends one email out a day and he just says like, hey, look, here's a chance to donate. So I donate. Mm-hmm. In just a moment, Peppy's cell phone rings. And since he's recording himself using a voice memo on his end, it interrupts the recording for a moment. Thankfully, we always record a backup feed. But you'll notice for a minute here that his audio changes. It'll be back to normal in a few. Who would you like to see as a running mate? for bernie what in the world is that <laughs> your phone ring uh, sorry that was actually bernie calling me for donation so. oh come on who would you like to see as a running mate hmm. 2020 bernie oh wow this just got political um that's a great question thank you so let me let me answer that question in a typical uh you know post panel q a uh, way mm-hmm. by uh sort of not really answering it cool um i would say that <clears throat> I don't really believe in the VP as kind of like an important, the VP is kind of just like a weird media obsession of of a way of balancing out the ticket. I mean, yeah, you know, the vice president has a lot of power, but uh, I'm I'm kind of less interested in that, to be honest. Uh, So, but if we're going to play the game and 
you know, you want to say who gives him the best chance to win, uh, I would say it's probably Elizabeth Warren. Uh, I think Elizabeth mm-hmm. Warren is, you know, a great politician. I also think that she largely shares Bernie's values. Um, I would say that she's actually a little bit more to the center of, uh, of Bernie there, but um, probably down with Sanders Warren. That's exciting. What about in, okay, let's let's bend reality. Sanders Pence. <laughs> What do you think about that? I mean, come on. Let's say. <laughs> Sanders pens on a unity. <laughs> 2020. He migrates over. He cascades. Oh, no, no way. Cascades over. The Mueller report drops. It's got some really sketchy stuff in it. People aren't excited. Trump is canceled. Pence has to move over to join Sanders' ticket. Are you still with Bernie? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, last year, you guest edited Heavy Machinery, uh, issue number eight of SF MoMA's Open Space publication. Will you talk a little bit about the critique that Heavy Machinery was putting forward? What prompted you to put together this publication? What's the overarching kind of topic that you were addressing? Heavy Machinery was a kind of publication version of the discourse that's been coming out of a group that I run uh, in New York which is called Cloud-Based Institutional Critique. CBIC. CBIC. Yeah, it has a really bad name. Um, And I think perhaps Heavy Machinery was an attempt to kind of like rename it or, you know, uh, send it off in a different direction. But um, largely both of those projects are around uh, the critique of technology um, and specifically thinking about, um, you know, sort of platform capitalism and how it affects uh, cultural institutions. I think in particular, the sort of museum community over the last 10 years has been kind of enthralled to this idea of a sort of digital utopia or this idea that um, technology can solve their problems. Right. Uh, or just in general, this idea that technology is inherently a, a progressive kind of historical force that is can only do good. Mm-hmm. And I think you see this a lot when they sort of mix up the idea of the you know, technological progress with the artistic avant-garde. So, so I think that uh, CBIC uh, and heavy machinery were largely kind of just checks on that uh, that kind of progression, checks on that ideology that I had seen proliferating in the art world. So, um, heavy machinery was done with SF MoMA and Open Space, which is um, a wonderful. Um, Really just like a wonderful publication edited by Claudia Laracco. And, uh, it was a special issue. So, um, we brought together a bunch of voices who were in and around CBIC. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, that was basically the theme. It was, it was trying to help institutions think through, uh, the platform, right? So mm-hmm. it was trying to help define what an institution really means and what values, uh, institutions bring after the proliferation uh, of of digital platforms uh, throughout culture, so that was that's heavy machinery in a nutshell. So you wrote an introductory essay to it. You also edited essays by multiple other people. But in your intro, you say that institutional critique failed, but now it's in an even worse predicament. Our institutions seem to be defined by a preoccupation with critiquing themselves at precisely the time when they are no longer the true threat, no longer a worthy object of critique. Could you defend that, please? <laughs> uh, yeah, of course. I'm just kidding. I think I'm the reason that but you jumped get, out. You get the point, I'll, right? I'll back up a little. Yeah. I get the point, but I think there are so many people who might read that and go, 
well, wait a second, no, museums need to be more equitable places, they need to be more just, and that's where they're putting their energy, but you're kind of proposing, like, they're not really where that conversation is happening, or what is... What am I meant to get out of that? Yeah, so you're, you're bringing up some some great questions, and there's a lot here, right? So I think the first thing is that um, overall, I think, in you know, I share the general uh, political goals of of decolonization, and I share the overall political goals of trying to make sure museums can be. Uh, you know, institutions which reflect the society we want to live in. I, I of course, believe that. Um, I think what's going on here is it's a little bit more about tactics and it's a little bit more about, um, you know, sort of where to focus one's energy. Uh, for example, the museum throughout history has rightly been associated with capital, with state power, with all the sort of um, kind of, you know, terrible things that we can imagine. Uh, and therefore, institutional critique kind of kind of created a relationship, a critical relationship in that formation. I am largely saying uh, that after platform capitalism, the museum's role has largely been stripped out. The museum's power has been largely stripped out. It is no longer really uh, the the largest site of power upon which we can kind of project the world we want to live in. I think, for example, large platforms such as Google, Facebook, uh, and other sort of platform technologies um, are actually the the larger kind of targets here. So so I think I think institutional critique is trying to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater here in a lot of cases. I mean, I think there's some examples recently where um, you know they want to reform the museum, uh, but I think that what they do is they end up kind of eating their own tail uh, in a lot of these situations. Meanwhile, while they are critiquing the museum. There are other players coming in to do the work mm-hmm. that the museum used to do. And there's no guarantee that those are any better than the sort of imperfect institutions that we have now. So when you talk about platforms specifically, what is it about platforms that is kind of so threatening or is so dubious about them? Is it the fact that they can adapt so quickly to critiques that are leveraged against them. Like they, they operate with all of these kind of content production areas, but any of those areas could be dismantled or removed and they can continue to chug along. Or, I mean, what is it about the platform that is so scary versus the institution? Is it because an institution is static and a platform is nimble? Well, I mean, Sean, as you say, follow the money, right? It's basically, (laughs) it's, here, here's a good example, right? So, okay. the the Google Arts and Culture Project, uh, yeah, in, in many in many ways, it does perform the same function as an institution, right? In the sense that it is it is a broker for images, it is a uh, it is a place where. We can access and study. It is a place where we can, um, you know, enjoy art. Uh, it, is a, it is a sort of cultural institution, educational institution in, in, in that sense. But the reason it's not an institution is because it does not exist solely for that purpose, right? It essentially colonizes the content, quote, quote, unquote, uh, of art in order to pull in um, eyeballs towards Google to, to essentially enrich its platform, to essentially mm-hmm. sell ads, right? So, I mean, it, it almost kind of is insane that we have to be so, 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 um, so obvious with this. But clearly, Google does not have the same intentions as an institution does. I think that uh, there is something worth preserving about an institution of art uh, in general, where it exists not just to transmit content, but it exists even without an audience, right? So it's not necessarily interested in the audience. 
uh, and that connection and that network effect, um, it is standing in uh, for the purpose of art in general. It's not it's not just interested in transmitting. Um, so that's sort of you know one kind of critique I have of over the past ten years, you've seen people adopting these digital tools. Yeah, but I think CBIC and heavy machinery is trying to just ask the questions of you know is this actually building the future we want? Do you think that I mean, so Google Arts and Culture, that's an interesting example. And it makes me think of the way that platform capitalism tends to generally just exploit existing social infrastructures. I mean, Amazon and the post office, um, anybody trying to redo public transportation. It's like the joke that Silicon Valley keeps just inventing something that already exists. Um, So is is that the same kind of thing with Google Arts and Culture? Is that all that they're doing is utilizing like the physical storage space and collections of actual institutions to like under the guise of making it more equitable and accessible. They're actually just, you're saying they're just using it in order to drive their stock or to sell advertisements. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, any, any, any time you have, anytime you have private companies involved in performing the, the stewardship that the institution used to have, you open yourself up to so many more risks, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. the point to make here is that, just like the internet was sort of created on the backs of the government or larger public institutions, mm-hmm. um, you have a situation where we're in this flux space where we think that potentially technology companies can do a better job uh, than the institution. And therefore, we look to technology companies to sort of lead um, certain institutional practices. Uh, but what's happening is there's a danger there because once they become too good at that, uh, if you continue to push that logic through to its end conclusion, uh, you would sort of get rid of the museum altogether. Uh, and then you have a very different sort of cultural landscape where you have, um, you know, stewards of culture who essentially just care about the bottom line. Yeah. And that's sort of, you know, that's sort of not, uh, that's cer- certainly not a world we want to live in. So we're just trying to think through those problems. Huh. Well, Mike, that brings me to a new game for this week, if you're uh, up for playing it. This game is called Neoliberal or Libertarian. Um, so I've just, I've just been elected mayor of a major city. Uh, I'll explain one of my new public policy proposals to you, and you'll tell me if it's neoliberal or libertarian and why. Um, okay, number one. <clears throat> I want to offer my citizens more choices when it comes to having their trash removed. So I dismantle the Public Sanitation Services Department and open the market up for bidding from private sanitation companies who I think will provide more efficient trash removal with more features for customers, possibly based on a tiered system where they can opt into additional monthly or weekly services like recycling or composting at a small additional cost. Also, I want to add that through the program, we'll be adding in tax incentives to the companies to help us blow up the public perception of the garbage man with the goal of having at least 50% of our workforce uh, garbage women by 2023. So neoliberal or libertarian uh, that first of all that scheme sounds terrible uh <laughs> second of all that's an that's an easy one that's that's neoliberal okay uh and the reason why is because uh although it's peppered in with this idea of the free market it's fundamentally using the government to falsely create a uh, free market right and it's uh it's also legislating through the tax code it is uh it's wrapping itself in sort of um uh, green politics that's definitely a neoliberal Okay, cool. And also the sort of optics of the um, <laughs> gender equity. Um, you know, that yeah. one is that one is rooted in 
remember I used to always ask you what neoliberalism was and then I had a dream one night I'm not even joking I had a dream about like a sanitation department getting dismantled in order to have private bidders going to it and I woke up one morning in like 2014 like understanding neoliberalism a little bit better I felt like okay um, number two uh, if there are enough gay marriages we'll legalize weed <laughs> so, um, so like there's that, a <laughs> wait so you, it's trying to just incentivize <laughs> uh, oh god um, mm-hmm. I don't even know uh, <laughs> so once there's a number of gay marriages in a certain state then weed is legalized in our city yeah so like it would be it's it's another incentive program um, but this one is that if we can, <laughs> yeah, I see what you're. I see what you're doing there. You're trying to mix. You're trying to. You're trying to mix like the two parts of that like political. You know, the, like that political foursquare thing. It's like you basically just took the two poles and just you know combine them in a sentence. Um, again, this one does not make any sense. Uh, but um, I think it probably again is. Uh, I would call that neoliberal, right? Okay. Um, yeah. Because although that, although although libertarians love the idea of uh, you know marijuana legalization, uh, they probably wouldn't peg it to a certain quota of marriages. Um, that would be okay. Pretty much, uh, that would almost sort of be like a central planning sort of uh, mm. socialist idea, right? So, mm. so yeah, no, that's uh, that that's just incredibly okay. neoliberal. Okay, um, <clears throat> number three. Uh, universal basic minion gum. <laughs> okay, this is the first good idea that we've heard. Um, I like this one. Uh, for us, universal basic minion cum. So, like, income in minions? No. So you just get, minion, like, one minion, minion sent to your door? Mm-mm. Minion okay. cum. Okay. Like, they're, like, cum, but from minions. Like, oh my god, that's uh, that's also neoliberal. I think I don't know. Jesus. Okay, fine. Let's change. Let's change it to what you first thought it was. Minion come, like income, but not jizz. But like, you get a minion. Everybody gets one minion. Um, to do their bidding. That's uh, that's probably more libertarian. Yeah, that's gonna be libertarian. Just now because libertarians that, love minions. Is the, um, and do you think that the... I mean, we're talking they're about... They're yellow. They're yellow, which is like the libertarian color. So. Yeah. <laughs> is it because they're a different species that um, it, it does not violate the non-aggression principle? Because I feel like under libertarianism, any type of slavery would be um, an act of aggression. And so is yep. it... Yeah. Is it is it effective because they're minions and not people? Um, wait, first of all, I don't know that much about minions, uh, but um, yeah, I guess, I don't know. That just seems libertarian because uh, it has a sort of has this idea that, you know, you just 
inject uh, a society with a certain good and let the market sort out what they do with it. You know, I can imagine them. I can imagine them sort of like shaming people for wasting their free minions, whereas like some yeah. were more economical and hoarded their minions and created a, a minion business. Like I, I, that seems very libertarian. Um, yeah. Again, I mean these are completely ridiculous. And yeah, well, uh, it also uh, I guess it kind of makes sense too because technically a minion wants to serve. I mean that's like it's in their DNA. Um, okay, number four. <laughs> We're going to significantly relax gun control laws, but there will be a lot more street art murals in public parks. <sighs> okay. Um, <laughs> We're going to um, that, basically that get is... rid of... Like, if you want an AR-15 um, with however many magazines of ammo, fine. Buy it online. But uh, part inserted into this proposal is uh, a bill... To fund more like street art murals. So, uh, I think you might have like messed up your formula here because this one just this one just seems straight up libertarian, right? I mean, don't mm-hmm. libertarians like graffiti? I think they kind of like are down with that because it's they probably like the know. aesthetic of it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I'm <laughs> saying this one's going to be uh, you know almost 100% libertarian. Okay. Um, number five, everyone gets a girlfriend except the guy who ran against me. <laughs> uh, that's that's going to be libertarian for sure. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, number six, uh, we'll be offering people a tax credit towards seeing a dentist every time they take an Uber or a Lyft and use the promo code Chompers. <laughs> That's that's gonna be neoliberal. I think that's also like actually a law in San Francisco. So. <laughs> and is that it's neoliberal because why? Um, well, outside of this idea that outside of this idea that uh, you know platforms such as Uber or Lyft uh, are more effective at moving people than any state-funded public transportation. Um, I also just think there's clearly, again, just some state-mandated incentive structure there, which seems very neoliberal. Uh, also, like, the other hallmark of neoliberalism is that they're also, they, they very often will just treat the symptom, not the underlying problem, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, I kind of forget exactly how that one started because it was so ridiculous, but um, clearly you should just make it more affordable for people to see dental care in general yeah. rather than just putting Having some to take a lift. fancy bolt-on you know, <laughs> aspect to So yeah, so as like a, as a democratic okay. socialist, I would just you know, try to get to the root of the problem. Uh, so mm. yeah, doesn't okay. seem like that one does it. Um, number seven, a workout incentivization program that uses citizens' body mass index to determine their neighborhood parking permit tags. So, for example, if you're in better shape, you get to park in front of your house or even in your own driveway. But if you're overweight, your overnight spot might be as far as a mile from your neighborhood. So it kind of encourages people to be in shape so they can walk a shorter distance from their car to their house. And so we, we, we got to be careful here because like if if someone hears this, they're going to like try to actually pass this as a law. Like if, if Gavin Newsom is listening, he's going to he's going to like put this on the floor soon. Um, yeah. So this one's very neoliberal uh, uh-huh. and just sort of uh, God, just cruel, I think. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, another another hallmark of neoliberalism maybe is like this idea that uh, w- while they inject free market uh, mechanisms into little parts of the process, they mm. overall do believe that like the state should should kind of enforce certain things and mm. the state should care about certain things. So I think a libertarian here would say, if you want to be overweight, that's totally up to you. Um, you cannot cool. be coerced in any way uh, to not be overweight. Um, and it's essentially no part of the government's responsibility to try to change that. Um, so yeah, this one's pretty neoliberal. <clears throat> okay. Um, last one. This is number eight. Uh, this is my last policy proposal. Uh, SantaCon in July. <laughs> Two times a year now. When is, when is it now? I think December. Probably around okay. Christmas. But SantaCon <laughs> in July. SantaCon I mean, in July. And, here's, and hear me out here. I mean, the <laughs> July is in my city. Uh, July is uh, a slower month because a lot of people mm. are on vacation. Um, incidentally, not a lot of people come to my city for vacation during the summer. It's very hot. So mm-hmm. we have a pretty slow month. So uh, we're trying to... We, we do know that during SantaCon, um, it's a net positive in terms of economics. Like what people spend on Ubers and Lyfts and alcohol and costumes and things like that, um, despite the public nuisance that some people perceive it as. So we're looking to inject a little bit of that kind of economic boost into the summer months, kind of incentivize uh, businesses to stay open later, to offer types of specials, uh, and keep people in town, most importantly. I mean, that's that's the main goal here is um, the mayor. I don't want anybody leaving town. It's your number um, one job. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I kind of do feel like the people I see on in SantaCon in New York are kind of libertarian. Like it seems like mm-hmm. kind of, kind of like appeals to them. I don't know mm-hmm. why, but. Um, Definitely. <laughs> They're the kind of people, because they don't take, Claire described this really beautifully. She said, it's like, you know how like, like Crimbus or Krampus or Festivus, like all these kind of like ironic versions of Chris. She's like, those are all for boys. <laughs> Which means those are for libertarians. <laughs> it's like what that what that sentiment means. But yeah. yes, people who like ironically go to the nth degree to celebrate Christmas are definitely. I feel like you're right. That's a yeah, libertarian like type the, of behavior. Yeah. Like the the ideal inflection point of being a libertarian is being like a 22 year old white male who mm-hmm. like you know studied econ. In college, like that's like the only world in which like the libertarian ideas even like have a have a sort of have any legs, mm-hmm. uh, and those are just like generally the people I see like polluting the streets of New York during uh, during SantaCon. Um, I'm gonna have to go, despite the affinities here uh, with libertarianism. I would say that just is neoliberal, I guess. I don't know because, because of like the, to, like the event planning <laughs> your, your aspect explanation of it. around. Your explanation around how it's sort of pr- trying to prime the pump of tourism makes it really kind of neoliberal. I don't know. But I, I mean, I could see like New York City doing something like this. Like there's probably, a, you know, an argument being made somewhere in the halls of City Hall about how Santa Con creates X amount of, kind of uh, you know, GDP lift or something. Yeah. yeah, it's great for the East Village, I think, maybe primarily. Um well, Peppy, thank you for playing neoliberal or libertarian. You've won. Um, nice. As we're kind of rounding the time out here, though, I did want to ask about something that I understand is a new interest of yours. It's very local to uh, your origin story. Uh, what is the Kelsey outrage? Could you tell me a little bit about that? You, you sent me a link. I've learned a bit, but I'm interested to know more because this is 
For anyone listening, Pepe is from Long Island. Is it where you grew up? Is which way is it pronounced? Hard uh, G, I, I, soft G. No, no what, how do I pronounce Long Island? Yes, just like that. Just like Long I just Island. Said it. Okay, yeah, you that don't was my do natural. That, that okay. was the natural uh, <laughs> accent from my from my my hometown. So what's the Kelsey so, outrage from uh, your hometown? Yeah, so I, I just discovered this. I, I'm a little bit of a history buff, uh, and uh, it doesn't sound like it if you just discovered something uh, well, from your hometown. Okay, That's kind okay. of the he- opposite of. Hear me out. Hear me out. Uh, so I grew up grew up in Huntington, uh, uh-huh. and you know it's like a colonial town. It's been around for forever in Long Island. Uh, and I just the other day learned that in a in a side street in my town in 1873, a local school teacher and sort of like parvenu. Um, who was 42 years old at the time, named Charles Kelsey, was uh, tarred and feathered. Uh, mm. And the sign on the street refers to the exact site where it happened. Uh, and then the rest of the sign basically hints uh, or uh, talks about what happened after he was tarred and feathered. Uh, and it says he was murdered by persons unknown. Um, and that just mm-hmm. sounded so so um, oddly like a horror story or like an unsolved mystery. And then I Googled around and it turns out that um, I had never known about this, but uh, there was essentially a murder that was been remains unsolved to this day as to who killed Charles Kelsey. Um, and the quick backstory is that he was uh, sort of calling on and had a uh, affair with the, one of the um, sort of maidens in the town at that time who was who was a beautiful young um, single woman who was sort of supposed to marry into a more wealthy family. But uh, Charles Kelsey was this kind of like... I wasn't the person she's going to marry named Royal? Yes. His name yeah, was Royal, Royal yeah. which is pretty cool. So, so uh, what basically happened is this, it's like it's, you know made for podcast Netflix uh, unsolved murder mystery here. So uh-huh. I'm trying to develop this into like a documentary, but um, it's kind of fascinating. No one ever. So they found the bottom half of his body, but to this day, the, the, the roving band of, of bandits that killed him, uh, they have not found the top half of his body. So, so there's this sort of like ghoulish unsolved mystery in my hometown where yeah. somewhere in my hometown is the top half of Charles Kelsey. Uh, so yeah, there, that's the basic background and, and, you know, I'm considering just giving, giving it all up and just committing my life to solving this mystery. You sent me a link about it and I watched like this evening news report about it. And then I read some of the comments cause I, I mean, I love local news website yeah. comment sections and there was somebody who was jumping in who said that they were like, um, they were like a descendant of Charles Kelsey and like their family is just like still furious about it. And I was like, I mean, I think it's stolen valor. I don't think that person is really relate. You know, you got to comment with your Facebook name. I mean, I understand there could have been marriages that changed it, but their last name wasn't Kelsey. But it really felt to me like anybody could kind of claim that set, you know, and just be like, I'm a descendant of Charles Kelsey. But yeah, it said that the bottom half of the body floated. It was floating in the river or something or yeah, some I mean, water and then the top half though just wasn't there and they had a funeral for the legs yeah it's 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 pretty gruesome you know it's 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 th- someone should really make a documentary a movie about this it's um it's pretty gruesome basically yeah so they they found the bottom half of the body 
Uh, and they are, it's unclear why he was sort of severed in this way. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's something that could potentially tear, the, I mean, it did tear the town apart at the time. It was, it was clearly a court sort of, I want to say town gown, but it's not really exactly town gown. It's, it's just sort of a, a, a kind of a, a story of class struggle, a story of this kind of new money guy coming in and, and, and trying to mess with the aristocratic families of, of the day. Um, and the fact that it turns so gruesome and violent is just uh, really kind of crazy. Yeah. So. And there's definitely, I mean, the way you describe him, a new money guy going after this this very young woman. It sounds very libertarian to me, um, <laughs> sort of coming at challenging the local perceptions of consent law. Um, well, yeah, I mean, a lot of like a lot of uh, a lot of rhetoric from that day was definitely very libertarian. You know, it's uh, <laughs> it's, it's a... uh, that kind of live free or die kind of stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. The kind of, you know, private property rights kind of. Yeah. Uh, ideology is all over kind of colonial um history and colonial like statues and things so yeah i mean that's uh that's kind of where it starts there's another part of that story that i think would make for really good drama too which is that the young woman who charles kelsey was kind of courting they had like a, a system where she would put a light in a lamp in her window to say the coast was clear like come on over and that yeah. the night that he was killed, the lamp was set up, and, and it is suspected that she may have double crossed him as like set him yeah, up. Yeah, that's which is like there, there you go. Really so that's exciting. a whole other part of this. Very that's exciting. a whole other part of this uh, drama. That could is, get is revealed. How, in, like, how was the she fourth. implicated in this? Yeah, they should reveal that in like the fourth episode. You know what I mean? <laughs> so just to kind of keep it going, because otherwise people would get kind of like you can't show all your cards at first. You got to wow them. Yeah. Okay, and then for real, last thing I want to get a rundown of your top haunts in new york i know that you are you're serious about restaurant lighting you're serious about all kinds of lighting but you've also got a few places that you really like and i know that some of them probably because of crooked new york city health inspection kind of things maybe have closed recently but what are the what are your spots these days you don't have to blow them up if you don't want people mobbing yeah i gotta be careful here uh about what to what to really highlight um well i'll start with the one that's already kind of been blown up and uh that's forlini's so forlini's yes there was uh, a times article about it josh Cinderella, friend of the pod was quoted in it was he not yeah he was yeah so josh and i were sitting down uh (laughs) on friday night as we do almost every friday night at forlini's and um my now friend but uh then just journalist uh at the times uh, walked in and i kind of recognized him and i said hey what are you doing here what's going on uh and he kind of took me to the side and he could kind of tell that i wasn't really a fan of this place being written about mm-hmm. um and but at the same time i kind of wanted to like make sure he wrote a story that wasn't, you know, misrepresenting what Forlini's was. It turns out that that night and that, uh, that article and that author was the, the, the infamous sort of, um, the Instagram horde takes over Forlini's. I think that's the title. Um, mm. but yeah, so Forlini's is great. Lighting is great there. The food is solid. Uh, you know, the location is wonderful. It's, you took me there the first time that I went there. I went with you. We did. Yeah. And did. Andrea McGinty. Yeah, yeah, it's a wonderful place. Yeah, I like. So yeah, it Forlini's a lot. is Forlini's is my spot. Um, okay, it's it's a wonderful place. It's uh, really great owners, and um, you know, I talked to them about their lighting. We're working on it, but uh, in general, it's just a wonderful spot. It's been around for for many many years, and 
Um, but yeah, so I think now after the after the New York Times article, which basically said that a lot of hipsters and art people and Instagram models are coming in and, you know, taking selfies with the chicken parmesan and sort of stuff. And it kind of talked about the clash of cultures in New York City, because the other sort of the other sort of local in, in for these is, you know, like the judges, the lawyers, the people that work for the city, uh, you know, a little bit more of a Sopranos vibe. So it's those mm. mixings of worlds that happen in Forlini's. It's very, very New York City tale, in a sense. Um, that was the sort of subject of this article. Um, so, yeah, Forlini's is my spot. Um, and I love it. And when you're back in New York, we mm-hmm. should go. Yes. So we'll keep we'll put that one on record. The other ones are going to be a little bit of a secret, I think. Maybe you can keep those. And then if they blow up. <laughs> well, I mean, look, maybe. The, uh, so the other one is uh, Cafe Lou, right? And Cafe Lou, uh, unfortunately, uh, closed. And I think it's closed for good. Um, so I'm really not so worried about uh, it blowing up. But uh, Well, you know what? I have a refuse tattoo that I got <laughs> in like... 2002 and then they got back together so you don't know i mean you could you could really regret what you're saying right now they, they so they already closed once so what happened was they That's closed what I'm because they to owed say. taxes yeah so th- so they they owed taxes they were closed oh, like for about Mary a week boone. <laughs> <laughs> yes they were had a mary boone situation um they they closed for like a week and a half and then all of a sudden there are all these stories in like the new yorker and like the new york times and like grub or eater and all these kind of like foodie sites uh and i never really knew it was that big of a deal i always kind of knew it was like a neighborhood joint in the west village where you just kind of like go and listen to jazz and you know read a book and kind of talk to the bar it was kind of like a cheer situation it was like a real neighborhood joint yeah um but apparently all those people sort of sitting behind me were kind of a who's who of the book world right and so i only really realized that it was this like kind of landmark for for book people and like literary agents and like poets and writers after it closed um so anyway there was this huge uproar when it closed um and somehow they someone came in and helped them settle up the tax bill um which allowed them to reopen uh but you know when i was there in the in the period in the period recently where they were had reopened and before they closed a second time the bartender dean uh you know, would always drop these sort of cryptic hints of like, yeah, let's see how long we last. Let's see how long we last. So apparently they just uh, still are back on their taxes and have closed. And, mm. and I've been told that uh, they're, they're closing for good. So that's sad. So it's really sad. Um, it's we're in a post Cafe Lou New York right now. So, well, maybe, you know, you here's an idea. I just saw someone tweet that they're looking for a curator at a museum in Huntington right now. So maybe the next step in your life is you apply, you get that curator job, you remake that institution from the inside, you make sure that they have no social media channels while you shoot your documentary about the Kelsey outrage, and then you open up Cafe Lou Long Island. And that sounds you, great. You just write the world, write all of its wrongs. Would you like yeah. to do that? That sounds, that sounds amazing. You just figured my life out for me, Sean. Thank you. <laughs> well, Mike, thank you so much for spending some time talking with me this week. It's a pleasure to have you on the pod. Um, I want to also thank you for turning me on to Steely Dan. Like, I would say that I'm a Steely fan now. I'm proud to proud to be a Steely Stan, no less, I, I would say, maybe. Well, that's, that's, that's great, Sean. Thanks so much for, for having me on. And, and I'm, I'm really glad I was able to introduce you to the world of Steely Dan. 
Thank you. And to everybody out there, uh, enjoy this Steely Dan that takes you out. We'll catch you next week. So